everybody, and welcome back to another Pink Bike Podcast with me, your usual host for these things, Mike Levy. Today, we're on episode 64, and we're talking about the people and the things that we would like to see on our make-believe mountain bike, Mount Rushmore. But first, I've got my intern here, Mike Casimer, with me. Kaz, you're American. Have you ever been to Mount Rushmore? I have, yeah. When I was 12 years old, we took a brutal trip, a van road trip around the entire country from Connecticut all the way through the whole U.S. for three oh weeks God. with four children in a van and my parents. And at one point we were in South Dakota and I saw Mount Rushmore. Is that like a rite of passage? Like every American has to go to Mount Rushmore in a horrible yeah, van? fireworks and set them off yeah, or something? I think so. I think that's part of what you have to do. You have to go to like Washington, D.C. and then get heat stroke and pass out. And then you have to go like to see the arch in St. Louis and then you go to South Dakota. Yeah, it's a thing. Nice. But yeah, I have been there and there are people carved into a mountain. They look huge in person, is it? Yeah, they're pretty big. If you look at pictures of when they're building it, like you can see the little workers like on the nose of the president and stuff. All right. Well, we're going we're gonna to talk about Mount Rushmore a bit. We're going to turn this into a bit of a history podcast for a few minutes. But first, I've also got Brian Park. Brian, have you ever been to Mount Rushmore? No. <laughs> no, I haven't. Oh. Hey, James. I've also got James Smurfwaif here with me, as the internet <laughs> might know it as. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's smart. It's smart. I actually, um, yeah, I've had worse nicknames, not going to lie, but um, I just wish I was cool, you know? Just wish I was yeah. cool like that. I think you're cool. I don't know if that counts for much, though, James. James, does the UK have some sort of, like, Mount Rushmore type thing, where you have no. you know, faces of your of your, what do you guys call them? Well, we kings have. and queens, kings and queens, Royal. and prime ministers. Um, no, I, I, mean, I couldn't just even. Boris Johnson just <laughs> carved into the side of some fucking mountain. <laughs> like the White Cliffs of Dover, you could put them in there. That's a thing. Yes, right? yeah, you could yeah. canvas that. Yeah, uh-huh. bank yeah. canvas. No, so we got Stonehenge. I guess that's sort of similar. That's just old. It's not particularly impressive, yeah. to be honest. We should do a podcast about Stonehenge. That'd be cool. <laughs> Aliens. <laughs> All right, let's, for those that don't know, let's just spend a few minutes talking about what Mount Rushmore is and what the heck we're talking about. So first of all, Mount Rushmore, it is a massive granite mountain. It's in the Black Hills of South Dakota, and it has the faces of four American presidents carved into it. Kaz, that took from 1927 to 1941. Do you know how many people died when they were making it? Probably a handful. Yeah, None. Died back then. None. Someone must have died. No. No one fell off? I don't believe that. Nobody fell off. Well, somebody probably fell off, but apparently they say nobody died, which I'm surprised by. Yeah. If you drove into the visitor center, Kaz, you'd be looking at the faces of George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Theodore Roosevelt, and Abraham Lincoln. So the idea there, pay attention to this part, the idea there is that those four 60-foot-high faces represent America's first 150 years, the birth growth, development, and preservation of the country, apparently. Yeah. Everybody taking notes? Can we start like a generalist podcast where we just like talk about whatever? (laughs) You (laughs) just pretend you know things. Things we know even less about. (laughs) No, it's hooked up to the internet. So I can just, I just look at the internet and then I just talk about it. Mike Levy reads Wikipedia. (laughs) Mike Levy reads the internet. (laughs) I've heard worse ideas. Yeah. All right, so with those four points in mind, birth, growth, development, and preservation, we're going to talk about some of the people that deserve to be on our own mountain bike, Mount Rushmore, or that we think deserve to be. Cad, 
Kaz, did you know that they've they've had proposals over the years to add faces to that too? Yeah, there's always controversy about Mount Rushmore, it seems like. Yeah. Who knew yeah. South Dakota would make the news that often? Yeah. Do you know what the mountain used to be called? Like long before the white people came and showed up and said it was theirs? And just carved faces of other white guys in it? No, I don't yeah, know what exactly. it used to be called. <laughs> so the Sioux used to call it Six Grandfathers or Cougar Mountain. Interesting. James, take us to the news. Sure. Um, I feel like this got to mention a couple of times last week. It was published about the time we recorded. Um, but Kaz, last week you posted your review of the Nukeproof Giga. So Nukeproof has the Mega taking care of Endura duties. So instead they've called this a Super Endura frame. And they actually think of it as a smaller version of their descent downhill bike than a Mina Mega. So in short, it's 170 millimeters of travel. It's a 2.9er. It's got slack geometry and the sort of mini DH intentions um did it live up to that sort of mini downhill billing for you Kaz? uh i wouldn't really call it a mini downhill bike i just call it an enduro bike like maybe i don't even know if i would say super enduro it felt super like which is really easy to get along with it doesn't feel like a big monster um so yeah you can pedal it around you know you wouldn't want it obviously it's not your cross-country bike but it pedals well and descends does a really great job so i think if i i could have it for a bike around here or like a whistler bike yeah, it'd be super fun so we do see enduro bikes getting a lot, a lot bigger right now. And the things that we called super enduro bikes three years ago, four years ago are pretty mainstream. Is that is that because the courses are getting rowdier or is that because what Jesse Melamed needs to go fast on an enduro stage isn't what I need to like bumble my way through that same enduro stage and they're trying to sell bikes to me? Yeah, I think there's a mix. I mean, it also depends on where you're racing enduro. You know, like if you're racing some of the super tight stuff in Italy or France, you might not want the Giga. You might want something even a little smaller. Um, but, you know, for like Whistler, that those tracks there, are more um, wide open stuff, this would be great. How long ago were EWS racers on 140 mil bikes? I remember them on 140 mm -hmm. mil 29ers. Uh, I remember EWS racers telling me when i was at a bike manufacturer that they needed they wanted a smaller bike they wanted to go from 150 to 140 mm -hmm. and i mean even then we thought that was crazy i was 2014 2015 and that was a big fight kaz would you put a double crown fork on that giga if you were racing enduro or park stuff like is it i guess would you is it the kind of bike that you could we do see some guys doing that now um i don't know if this one is approved i think that means a carbon frame so you have to make sure it's approved for that yeah but i wouldn't put one on it i don't feel like in most cases double dual crown forks improve a bike uh, yeah. especially for me i'm not flexing a fox 38 or a rock shock zeb so i've never been like oh if this was stiffer i would go faster so all 155 I, pounds of you are what yeah are you exactly. serious? so uh, for me i don't think that i need a dual crown on the on this it, it works just fine with that uh, at a 38 on it so. yeah it'd also really lim limit your bar spins exactly i need to be doing those except at any any time i can do them SRAM has been working with Autodesk to produce generative design cranks. So generative design is basically where you put a load of parameters for a product into a software and that generates hundreds if not thousands of designs that fit the bill. Um, as cranks have remained largely the same for years, SRAM turned to generative design to see if they could find some innovation, something they hadn't thought of before. They ended up with a load of interesting designs, including some kind of fairly regular looking cranks with some material taken out to these wild kind of titanium 3D printed skeletal designs um, that they say are kind of much lighter than current cranks on the market. So James, it sounds like what they're doing here is instead of 
Instead of machining or molding a crank and then removing material from the aluminum crank or molding a carbon crank with some extra material where it needs to be, they're only putting the computer program basically tells them exactly where the material needs to be. And the finished product is this crazy looking thing with, I mean, it's got a lot of holes in it, doesn't it? Yeah, I think the the computer can sort of calculate where the stress points are and potentially where it can have that that space and um, sort of optimize using things like 3D printing. Yeah, this is stuff that I've seen in other industries, like the car industry. They've been making some really cool stuff, suspension components, things like that. It it looks like the stuff is growing instead of instead of machined. It looks pretty neat because it looks almost unfinished, too, doesn't it? Yeah, it's kind of wild. I feel like you guys should tap into this and make the next Grim Donut using robot AI technology. Just put in like fastest bike in the world, go, and then the computer can make it for you and see what turns out. That's <laughs> it what wouldn't we did. be the donut. <laughs> no, it's exactly what we did. We just copied and pasted from the past to the future. Yeah. It's all that. It's all that computer did. AI stuff's good scapegoat though. Like if you're in charge of designing something and then you just present that to your boss, you're like no, the computer made it. I, I, it wasn't me. <laughs> that actually is a great point. <laughs> yeah. No, we... I, I think I think it's not. I think it is unfinished. It looks unfinished and it is unfinished. I don't think that it's these are like release candidates or anything like that. I think this is uh, all learning and it's very cool that they made it public. It looks like a crank set that I drew with crayons when I was seven. <laughs> like <laughs> it, it doesn't is... look like it's straight. <laughs> it is also like a pretty cool PR thing. Like yeah. it's badass that they've shown everybody and shown what they're working on. But I guarantee you there are people taking that learning and turning it into something that's more realistic to manufacture. Yeah, yeah. I think it'll be interesting if we see in a couple years time, maybe high end stuff, the high end, most expensive, lightest stuff goes back to being metal instead of carbon mm-hmm. with this technology. I'm, I'm like a huge 3d dork right now. And I've been bugging the SRAM people to when they get a set in, I want to come take a look. Yeah. They could just send you the file. You could print your own plastic cranks. Yes. Something tells me they're not going to do that. <laughs> yeah, I don't think Weird. so. Um, lastly, we rounded off the field trip this week with the impossible climb, the efficiency test, and the hook to flat. Um, in the efficiency test, this is where we set out a fire road course and try and climb at the same power to see the differences in, um, well, suspension design. Half of them are hardtails, but see just to see generally how efficient they are. Um, so that was the Norco Fluid and the Vitus Sentia Hardtails that topped the table. Um, and the least efficient bikes were the Marin Rift Zone and the Da Vinci Marshall. From testing these bikes, Levy, um, were there any surprises uh, in that efficiency test? No, I don't think so. I mean, I think they kind of made it kind of made sense to me. I was really glad to not be doing it, to be honest. <laughs> Good job, Sarah. <laughs> Looked like she had fun. What's the... The hardtails in our efficiency tests have traditionally not done as well as some of the short travel full suspensions, and this time they did. Was that just down to the fact that we didn't use control tires where they were bigger trail bikes compared to the hardtails? No, I, I actually have a theory about that. So we didn't use the exact same starting and end points as the other efficiency tests, but we did use the same road. Uh, it's a fairly steepish gravel road just out of town. I was up there just a couple days ago on my gravel bike and the road is quite a bit smoother right now. It's been graded. Mm. And in those previous efficiency tests, it had it was covered in that washboard. And I remember climbing up there on a hardtail and getting bounced around up off the seat a little bit. And right. and I think that was a factor. Yeah, I think that was a factor in, in the bike's performance. 
Don't these roadworks people know that we've got science to do? Come on, Squamish, get your shit together. We have fake science to do. <laughs> was it a surprise that the BMC was outclined by two of the hardtails? Because that was kind of the most XC race bike of the lot, right? Yeah, I don't think it was a surprise. I mean, I'm pretty sure that BMC is faster over a long day. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say that we have a lot of fun doing the efficiency test, and I don't want to devalue it in any way, but it, it, it it's also yeah. not 100% lab science. And yeah, I mean, I'm on a, if I'm doing a cross-country race, it's going to be that BMC. I don't care if something else is faster up that gravel road. <laughs> Next up was the impossible climb, and that maybe showed that efficiency doesn't always translate to faster climbing times. Um, there are two bikes that made it to the top, the Trans X and the Rift Zone. Again, is there kind of anything we can take from this test? Uh, the traction helps you get to the top. It was wet when Sarah went and did that. So she she set the course when it was dry, and then the next, I think that night or the morning, the next morning it rained, so the course was a bit wet when she showed up to actually do the impossible climb. Um, and that Transex, it's super active bike, um, very forgiving. It feels like that, but I don't doubt that it helped her get to the top. The Rift Zone, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I don't know. Good job, Sarah. <laughs> Our first question is from Powderhound BRR. This is underneath the last podcast article. He's talking about drug dealers buying bikes in the last podcast article. Um, Kazim and I talked about when we worked at shops and drug dealers coming in to buy bikes and one of them left their backpack in the shop I worked at. Uh, and he says, just listen, I'm very curious what happened to the camelback full of drugs and money. Did he come back for it? Did you take it to the cops? Uh, did he? Did we do a little quality testing? Take the cash and buy a mini. I I would have loved to have keep that backpack, <laughs> but I didn't. My boss called the cops and they kept it. And who knows what they did with the drugs and money? All right, our next question. This is from SNL twelve hundred. Uh, This is also on the last podcast article. He says, what about a test where you have riders ride a series of bikes without looking at the weight of the bike beforehand or physically picking it up and guessing how much it weighs, so on and so forth. Kaz, when we test bikes, we don't look at the weight and a lot of time don't look at the geo before riding them, correct? Yeah, usually I don't weigh it until I got a handful of rides in, but... I mean, it'd be an interesting experiment. You know, some riders might not pick up quite as easily, but I do feel like if you had some climbing in there, you will notice weight um, or even just bunny hopping and, and that type of things. You could, you know, it depends how, if there's like maybe just a half pound, I think that's a lot harder to detect. But if you have a pound or two difference between bikes, I do think yeah. it is noticeable. Do you, you get used you... to it, like at a certain point. If you if that was your only bike, eventually that bike's going to feel normal to you. But then if you hopped on one that's 10 pounds lighter, you're going to say, oh, this is lighter. Do you think he's got a point that some bikes feel livelier than their weight yeah so i was going to say there's a bunch of traits that can make a bike feel heavier Mm -hmm. or make a bike feel lighter suspension is the most obvious one if it has like some poppier livelier suspension then that could go a long way to making a bike feel lighter Um, or it could be a light bike overall but have relatively heavy wheels on it which can make a bike feel heavier than what it usually does but yeah, so SNL 1200, we generally don't look at the weight before we test a bike. And most of the time, we don't even look at the geometry either. We just want to ride the bike and know what's going on. 
Uh, our last question, this is from blah, 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 bikes. This is also on the lo- the last podcast article. Make sure if you guys want us to answer your question, put it underneath the podcast because that's where we look. This one's a long one. Kaz, he says, first ride on a brand new bike. He's got a set of OEM Reval alloy rims, tubeless, 28 PSI. The rim dings so bad, he can't run tubeless anymore. Um, so that rim he got rid of. Uh, he rebuilt it with a different rim, a Hope Fortis rim. It's a wider one, same pressure, dings. Basically, this guy is destroying aluminum rims so bad over and over again that they're not tubelessing. What would you tell him that he needs to do? All right. Well, the first thing I'd say is a lot of times in this question, he's mentioning that the the uh, there's no marks on the side of the rim from these dents as if that's a surprise. But when a rim dents, it usually is because the impact comes through your tire hits the rim and dents it that way. So it's it's pretty rare that a rock would hit the side of your rim and dent it. So that's not something that's out of the ordinary, the way that these are denting, but it definitely sounds like a low pressure issue, um, even though he's running a fair bit of pressure. So first I would maybe check your tire pressure gauge. <laughs> you could just, yeah. that's off. You might be just running 15 PSI and think you're running 30. So check that. But then next step, um, I would bump up to some downhill casing tires. I think that this said, I can't remember if he said he was on an e-bike or, or he's heavy. There's some factors in there that made it seem like downhill casing tires will be just fine. Um, and then if you still have any issues with the downhill casing tires, a thicker insert, I think he said he was using their Huck Norris downhill insert. I would try something like Cushcore that basically fills up a good volume of the, uh, inside the tire itself and Cushcore and downhill casing tires. You should not be having as many issues with dents. It's guaranteed. I wonder if he's, I wonder if he's checking his tire pressure every ride or is he going to 28 PSI and going like, boom, it's at 28 PSI now. And then There's not- some video on pink bike about that. He should watch. <laughs> he should watch that video, yeah. but maybe he is, maybe he is checking his PSI every time, which you should do like yeah, every exactly. ride, make sure you're at whatever pressure you're happy with. I I have a controversial suggestion. Some, some commenters did already suggest this to him, but a carbon rim Kaz, um, if he's, I mean, it, it sounds like he's destroyed four or five aluminum rims, a huge pain in the ass. If he went with somebody's carbon rim, uh, especially somebody that offers a lifetime warranty. And one that's an e-bike rim. Yep. Get one of those like ultra heavy, horrible feeling, super stiff e-bike carbon wheel sets. That make you feel like you're running like 80 PSI. Yeah. 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 (laughs) I want to see a video of him riding too. I want to see this trail and where he's riding just because it sounds interesting. I'm impressed. We've got a lot of rocks here. That doesn't happen. (laughs) Is there a potential element of... He just is one of those riders that rides with no regard for his bike. That's very good like you know there are some people and That's bike mechanics make terrible racers kind of thing where because bike mechanics care too much about their bikes so they they won't just like thunder them and other people just have no regard for their bikes and then wonder why everything broke. Yeah, if I he was a he mechanic, did. he wouldn't be complaining about having to lace up new aluminum rims all the time. You'd be getting them at wholesale. <laughs> yeah. I think he was on an e-bike though too, right? I'm pretty sure it's somewhere in there he's like on a Kinevo. Mm-hmm. So that's a kind of a heavier e-bike. So if you're jumping into a, a rock garden on a heavier bike, there's a lot of force going into those wheels. So yeah, I'm sure you can figure it out. Yeah, carbon could work, but I think I would just stick with for now downhill casing and inserts and see how that works. It's a lot cheaper. Downhill casing and put a tire in your tire like back in the day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Turn one inside out, put the other one in and then put spray foam that you can get from like the hardware store in there. And then Find some new old stock Toby Henderson yeah. rims that had the like pre-insert Before, inserts. Yeah. yeah. 
ahead of their time. We did a podcast about those. I don't think I was there for that one. No, it was uh, products that were, you know, ahead of their time or that deserve more more attention than what they got, those Toby Henderson rims. Totally. Yeah. Huh? I agree All with right, that. so that's it for questions. And like I said before, put those questions underneath the podcast articles if you want us to answer them. Maybe in the future we'll do an entire episode of just us answering questions. I can hardly wait. <laughs> okay, let's get on to our discussion. Mountain biking doesn't have presidents, but there have been a lot of people who have had a massive impact on the sport. Be it racers and riders who pushed the limits or designers and engineers who pushed bike design, among many others. You could also make the argument that whoever first installed wide knobby tires and pedaled into the forest should be carved into our imaginary granite. But good luck figuring out who the heck that was. All right, guys, you need to figure out four people to have on your mountain bike, Mount Rushmore. Brian, let's start with you. Who's your Who's your first nominee? Oh, well, it's like for me, this is really a lot more about the riders. We've done lots of stuff on the important like breakthrough products and designers over the years, but this like for me, it's like the people who are Wait, on. You're not going to put heads. a dropper seat post up on our on our no, mountain. No, <laughs> <laughs> just carving it in. Make sure the tolerances are good. Yeah. <laughs> um, I also cut it off kind of early, like. If Mount Rushmore was the first 150 years, the formative years of mountain biking, I'm kind of cutting that off. Yeah, early 2000s um, in terms of those formative years. But I, let's start with the first one. I think I think a few of you guys also put him down, but John Tomac, um, you know, BMX beginnings. He was winning mountain bike races by 1986, the year I was born. Um, he appeared in, I, this, <laughs> I learned this just this morning but he appeared in one of the first mountain bike instructional videos entitled the great mountain biking video oh, uh, we shit. should find a copy of that <laughs> um but then yeah he you know he had success in downhill he had success in xc he had some success in road uh, just incredibly impressive he won in 91 he won the uci xc championships and he got silver in dh has that happened ever anywhere else julie Furtado. I'm right. sure she did something like that. Huh, that could be. Yeah. I don't disagree with you wanting Tomac on the list. He has to be he on He definitely the list. transcended transcended the the typical like I'm a downhiller, I'm a roadie, I'm a cross country guy, but it was different times back then. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, he yeah, I don't know. I'm not convinced. The guy's a legend for sure, but to say that he's one of the four mm-hmm. you know, most important yeah, I think he is. I'm voting for Tomac too. I mean, because like he was in the early days, the guy that could win anything. Like like you were saying, he could win a slalom race, an XD race, and he helped people. Okay, Kaz, what about this? If Tomac never happened, what would change? I don't think much would have changed. I wouldn't have been here mountain biking as much. Yeah. Was he your dad? <laughs> no, North American. Ma- awesome. That'd be cool. <laughs> me too. <laughs> if you adopt me, John, if you're listening. <laughs> North American uh, mountain biking would be way further back without Tomac. No. Huge, huge. Yeah impact in the birth and growth of the sport for sure yeah. you know i rode with him in uh in arizona on south mountain he saw me have a huge cartwheeling crash through the rocks and i got all fucked up i couldn't ride for like i don't know two or three weeks yeah anyways <laughs> that's embarrassing <laughs> yeah it was i see my hero <laughs> hey john watch this oh. <laughs> but yeah i think he i mean he just helped me in the early days it was like tomac and overend and 
and that crew that was motivating me to ride because they were, you know, the guys you're looking up to. So, okay. Yeah. Okay. I do like your, Levy, I do like your litmus test though of what would change with mountain biking if they hadn't happened. Yeah. Um, which I think is an interesting thing to think about with my second pick, which is Nico. I, I think you guys will all agree with me on Nico. <sighs> yeah. Oh my goodness. Explain yeah. yourself, Levy. No, I, I was can. Nico Vulio not on the list. Again, just ask yourself the question, if he wasn't around, how would the sport as a whole have changed? Like, We yes. wouldn't have superstars. We wouldn't have downhill superstars. Yes, of course we would. There would be champs. other superstars who would have won. Maybe somebody would have won three years in a row instead of eight years in a row or whatever, you know? I, but then like they'd be I don't Rushmore. think anything yeah. <laughs> huge ten, would have changed. You win 10 world championship, downhill world championships in 11 years. Uh, He's the second greatest racer of all time. I agree, but it doesn't mean that, that he should be carved into a granite mountain. So what do we carve in the granite mountain? Then a dropper post? Yeah, <laughs> that's what gonna have like, hey, gonna guess have what? Clip pedals. hundred percent. I okay. <laughs> no. I don't want a dropper post on our granite mountain, but I will argue to my death that a dropper post has had a bigger effect on the sport of mountain biking as a whole than John Tomac has. Oh I my thought we were goodness. talking about people for the whole concept yeah. no, here. We are, we are, <laughs> oh. we are. Well, then I'm just gonna... saying. Well, and we're not going to talk about the inventor of the dropper post on the Mount Rushmore. That's no. silly. We're talking about racers no. and personalities. Yeah. But the, I think the thing with Nico is it, it was like, it was more than wins as well though, right? Like he worked with Bossard and Commensal and like the bikes they produced were way, way ahead of what anyone yeah, else was cool, riding at the sure. time, um, which kind of accelerates the growth of mountain bike. But it's that attitude as well of like, um, kind of incremental gains like um, while you know Palmer was at the bar Vulio was in the shed like tinkering fessling trying to get every inch of performance out of his bike and that's an attitude that still remains in downhill today it's all about the minutiae of setup and and um, maximizing the the machine you know yeah without without Nico I think we'd still have we'd have a or the Rob Warner pissed at the pub kind of approach to downhill mountain biking would have lasted a lot longer money i think the money changed that i think when a whole bunch of money came in mm -hmm. i think people eventually would have realized that they have to be professional athletes and also i want to say that a lot of those guys that we think were out there partying and getting smashed all the time they were definitely out there getting smashed a lot but a lot of it was image those guys weren't doing the you know it wasn't party 24 7 they were being athletes as well too yeah but you gotta say that nico's nico's string of wins and everything has inspired people to yes. race downhill so that in fact yeah. in that way. but, yeah. but yeah. brian you can't have nico on there and not Anne caroline that's like i, I just oh that's a good point like Anne caroline chasson should be on there let alone for what she did for women in the sport as well too women's racing mm -hmm. like the inspiration that, that she brought I'm not on my list, and I'm I'm willing to amend. ACC could be on there. She's, yeah, Victory. absolutely a legend. It had a huge impact. I win. I don't think. <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to take her, put her on instead of Nico. No chance. Okay. Well, I'm gonna. Ch I'm just gonna put a forward slash and then ACC Nico <laughs> slash ACC. There we go. Maybe our Mount Rushmore is just bigger. It just has like yeah. ten heads on it instead of. <laughs> we can do I, that. We're I do rules. agree with your next. Your next. 60 foot high granite face that you want on there okay it, this has got to be at least a 60 foot high granite face of of wade simmons i think it's an obvious one 
Um, you know, and we have to do some balance after, after the eighties and the nineties, the late nineties and early two thousands definitely belonged to Wade and not racing. Um, so he started BMX racing and some XE and downhill racing, but so he did that too, but you know, his impact on the sport is really a fundamental shift. It's like, yeah, he won the inaugural Red Bull Rampage 2001 and some other competitions, but 2001, I know. I know. What the hell? You're old. But really, like, his impact is way bigger than that. It's it, it's the idea that you can provide value to sponsors by something other than standing on the top of a box. He's the Rob Machado of mountain biking. Plus, he made it look good. Like, in an era in freeriding, when freeriding was kind of yes. goofy, and there were people just dead sailoring giant hooks and just trying to hold on and hope it worked out. You know, Wade could hit drops with a little bit of style and starting to do mm-hmm. just kind of progress in a way that looked looked good instead of just like, oh, that guy's just a stunt dummy, like holding on for dear life. I'm convinced he's one of the only people early on that actually understood what a transition was and how it could work and help. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, honestly. <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I ha- actually, I've got a good story. I don't know how true this is. I didn't hear it from Wade, but I've heard... You guys know the the Moreno Valley, like the Marzocchi truck gap? I was just going to bring it up again. Okay. Like uh, iconic moment. If you're listening to this and you aren't a child of the early 2000s mountain bike dork, go and look up the Moreno Valley Marzocchi truck gap with Wade Simmons. It's, it's the cover of New World 3, New World Disorder 3, I think. And is uh easily if we were doing this mount rush more based on like impressive feats in mountain biking that it would have to be on there it's absolutely massive he butters it what i heard from somebody is that he actually hit that gap before the cameras were rolling he was like what yeah i heard that he hit the gap twice and the first time because like everybody was setting up and yeah. he was like well if i'm gonna ragdoll I don't want yeah. them to get it on can, film. And he just sent it. Can you text him right now and ask him and then we'll have the answer before yeah. our podcast ends? I'll do that. <laughs> ask yeah, him, yeah. We should also have Wade on one of these days. because We'll need to do a Wade pod. Up. Yeah. 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 Uh, Kaz, what would it take for you to do that Moreno Valley Gap? I don't know. It would, I don't know I would do. It would, it would literally so have to be life and death for me. <laughs> yeah. Like, it, it, yeah. If someone's going to like stab me in the eyeballs if I don't do it or something, then maybe. It I'll is do. life and death itself. Bender Bender crashed on that thing. Yeah, that ragdoll is so nasty. Yeah, no, I wouldn't hit that gap. It's too big for me. Let's not leave that to somebody else. Even on an e-bike? Even e-bikes can't do I would just go like straight down and land on the road probably. They're more stable in the air. <laughs> yeah, kind of. <laughs> uh, okay, we can go the last one on my list. This is, yeah, maybe, maybe a bit controversial, but I think it's more in the spirit of what Levy is envisioning for this Mount Rushmore. Um, it's Darren Barracloth, um, another free rider. Yeah. Maybe a little late to the party in terms of the formative years of mountain biking, but you've got two old racers and two, two old, old free riders. <laughs> I mean, congratulations, Mount Rushmore. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's what we're talking about. Isn't it? Our geriatric Mount Rushmore. <laughs> I mean, it's not, well, how like, would they not be old if you, they're not putting Bill Clinton on Mount Rushmore right now. That's true. They got to wait a while. Yeah, it's the first, it's the formative years of America. That's true. It's the formative years of mountain biking. They're going to be older legend people. Yeah. I don't know. Anyways, well, Darren, I am convinced that without 
Darren doing that 360 road gap at Crankworks in whatever year that was. Oh, five. Somebody look it up. I think freeride mountain biking would look a lot different today. The idea that you could, yeah, 360 mountain bike on a drop. It was just so, I remember watching that and just being like, oh my God, this yeah. is so different. That and the three that he did in New World Disorder 5, maybe? I think in the Which video. I don't know. He's in Kamloops and he threes. It's the first three that I oh, saw. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think it, I think I might've seen that before Crankworks. And that's why I remember watching Crankworks and thinking Claw is going to spin this freaking road gap. Mm-hmm. Just keep watching. And he did. Claw, you wild man. So I think, I think that free ride mountain biking would be further behind if he hadn't done that. I think it would have taken years for people to do that kind of thing. Yeah, I could get on board with that. Kaz, you agree? Yeah, yeah, that was definitely like a, a pivotal moment in the sport where it kind of just changed things. And yeah, I would agree with that. At that for that time period, that was definitely a significant event. Wade's calling. I'm going to put him on speaker. <laughs> oh, Wade, <shit. laughs> Wade, you're on speak. You're on speaker on the podcast. Hello, podcast. <laughs> so, is this true? I heard a rumor that you hit the Moreno Valley Gap before before the cameras were rolling. True or false? I hit the Marino Valley Gap twice. And uh, I wanted to do it once before the Marzuki truck was there. So, uh, yeah, I hit it once without the truck and then once uh, with all set up with the truck. Okay, but the cameras were rolling both times? Uh, well, John Gibson got a photo uh, the first time, but I, I don't think we got any... Uh, any footage? What Jeez. the fuck? <laughs> in terms of video, because uh, you know it's a it's a sizable jump, and they wanted to kind of they wanted to make sure they got it. Yeah. You know, like like they wanted to get the, the the best angle on it. You know, they got the long lens, the fucking wide, all this shit. So I want to I, I I greased one. I wanted to do one first because I was at. I'm like, let's fucking do it. And the trucks, you know, they they weren't quite all set up. So John Gibson uh, got a photo, which I have a poster of. Yeah, I I think I had that uh, that poster in a bike shop back in the day. Yeah, maybe. Is it still the biggest thing you've ever done? (laughs) Yeah, fuck. (laughs) It's so massive. (laughs) (laughs) All right, man. Uh, I'll give you a call after we're done recording. Okay. (laughs) Thanks, dude. I I like how just like, yeah, I hit it once. They wanted some, you know, I just got, it's like, dude, no, what? (laughs) (laughs) He's awfully cash about it. Yeah. yeah. That's awesome. I'm glad that the lore was kind of true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, you weren't spreading lies. Should we just cold call Wade Simmons for every podcast? <laughs> I think <Why> so. <laughs> yeah. Story time with Wade. <laughs> yeah. He would have a good story time. Yeah. Oh, we should yeah. do a story time with Wade sometime. Wait. Yeah. All right, James. Hey, you're going to follow up Wade Simmons' phone call. Who's the first person on your list? <laughs> Um, I've been pretty fastidious with this, actually. I've stuck to that sort of birth, growth, development, preservation thing. So I've kind of gone one for each. Um, My first one is um, the Rough Stuff Fellowship. So most people, when they think of the birth of mountain biking, they think hippies, California, 60s, um, you know, Sinyard and um, all of that lot. Um, But actually, off-road Cycling, that's been going much longer. Like I'm sure as long as there have been bikes, there have been people who want to take them off-road. Um, and the Rough Stuff Fellowship, they, were the, they are the oldest official off-road riding organization in the world. 
Um, they formed in Lancashire, which is my home county in England, and that was back in the 1950s. Um, they weren't using beach cruisers like the kind of the hippies in California, um, just the road bikes that they um, rode to work in the factories and the mines. Um, they just wanted an escape on the weekends, and they they formed this group to go and ride their bikes off road. Um, I don't think they were very good. Um, I don't think they were very gnarly. They weren't racing them, but um, they just had that sense of adventure doing tours around the UK in the Alps. Um, And, you know, obviously the influence and the impact of that group of riders in California, they kind of set mountain biking on its path to where it is today. But I think it's nice to acknowledge that off-road cycling has been a thing for decades and decades, um, way before those repack days. James, you you buttoned that one up pretty nicely. I can't really argue anything there. <laughs> if uh, if you haven't checked it out, there's an Instagram that I think it's called RSF Archive or something like that, which is a, all of the old photos that these guys had. And every time they post something, it's incredible. It looks so badass. It looks incredibly unpleasant. <laughs> it all looks like, oh, cool. They're like carrying their bikes through a slot like a giant mud bog again through yeah mostly it's just like wow i'm really soft <laughs> yeah there's um there's a single track documentary as well that's quite good it's called the untold story of british mountain biking and one of them on there tells the story of how they were shaking their bikes up mont blanc like just the least practical thing and like it was just basically a piece of luggage like they got to the base of mont blanc carried them to the top carried them back down and that was that was kind of their day out i guess but um the original influencers yeah <laughs> <laughs> Kaz, it sounds like one of your rides. Just push your bike up in walk mode, carry it down all the stuff. Yeah, maybe, but not really. No, I didn't even. Yeah, we didn't even talk about riding this weekend. I, <laughs> I have a bike that you would like now. Oh, really? What do you have? Yeah, I got a new transition spur. Oh, I like yeah. spurs. Yeah, that you do. Yeah, mine has code brakes on it though. No, mine doesn't have code brakes. Yeah, it's better. Mine has way. TRP brakes. Yeah, but anyways, I did down country riding. Yeah. So. I like this little tangent we're going off on here. Yeah. <laughs> I just have to prove to you that I'm not just pushing walk mode. I'm not doing proper rides on a spur. So defensive. Yeah. Jeez, Kaz. I'm not defensive. I'm just letting you know what I'm doing. Yeah. Little. Yeah. Did I get a little too close to the truth there, maybe? No. Because I haven't ridden an e-bike in like a while now. i got to ride one. I'll ride an e-bike today for you. <laughs> who's the next person on your list? <laughs> um, well, those trails, those down country trails, um, they might have been inspired by this next guy, um, Daffid Davies. Um, he was a Welsh forest ranger in the 90s. And he is kind of reportedly kind of the person who saw the potential for man-made single tracks, specifically for mountain bikes, um, as an alternative to kind of fire roads and hiking trails. Um, so he was building single track in the woods uh, in Coda Brennan, which is a forest in Wales, in Snowdonia. Um, and working with the Forestry Commission, he was basically able to sanction Britain's first trail centre. Um, I think it was 1996 it opened. Um, and since then, Britain has an explosion of trail centres all over the country. Um, kind of most forest parks you go to will have purpose-built mountain bike trails. Um, and it's a huge part of culture over here. James, I'm not going to lie. I'm very disappointed that you flushed out your answers so well, and I have nothing to say, <laughs> except that makes all the sense in the world. <laughs> I think, um, I'll, yeah, I'll just add to that. Um, it, it kind of also showed a model for like mountain biking as tourism as well. Um, and wherever these trail centers popped up, you know, the local pubs, the local cafes, um, the hotels all started getting kind of like a roaring trade of kind of affluent mountain bikers coming in. I think that really helped kind of mountain biking 
grow and develop as a as a sport and as a time of tourism activity as well. I know how much Levy really agrees with your next one, your next choice here. So we should just go straight to that one. Yeah, we we've touched on it, um, Nico. Um, you know, it's the, the right answer. Yeah, I think so. Like the the kind of who's the goat of downhill? Like most people seem to have settled on Minar. Um, I think the thing that that kind of maybe tips the balance in terms of Julio for me is like the time scale that he actually was a downhill racer. It, it's kind of like the Beatles for me, where like they were like they produced so much amazing music and revolutionary kind of recording techniques, and they did it all in seven years. Um, between like their first album and breaking up, Julio is kind of the same. Like he won his first World Cup at seventeen, and he was retired from downhill at twenty six. And in that time, like if you look at where the bikes were at the start and like the V processes he was riding at the end, um, what he did for downhill bikes and the technology, along with Olivier Bossard and Max Commencel, um, yeah, I think really makes downhill the Formula One of, of mountain biking that we we see today. Meh. <laughs> I'm just gonna make James argue all my points in the future. Yeah, yeah James. He's, yeah, he's very good. <laughs> yeah, he's he did his homework. Yeah. I yeah, James, I I could see, you know, why you'd why you'd want Nico up there. I just don't think that he changed the sport for like the average everyday rider. And you know, if he it's wasn't just around because you hate Europe and the crappy internet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, so that was development. And then the last category was preservation. And I think, so over the past 12 months, we've seen that mountain biking potentially needs to broaden the church a bit to flourish, um, to kind of continue to grow in future, unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, it can't just be the bros anymore. Um, so I wanted to include someone that is bringing new people into the sport and maybe changing how mountain biking looks as a culture. Um, I considered Elliot with Grow Cycling, um, but I'm sticking to Europe. So uh, I'm going to say Tracy Mosley instead. Um, obviously, incredibly successful in downhill, the most successful enduro racer ever. I think now she's also the most successful um, e-mountain bike racer ever as well, if that counts for anything. Kaz? Um, <laughs> yeah, it, doesn't, it doesn't count but it's okay she's really good at all the other things so. um but she's also really keen on kind of developing the sport she's got a development team and that's already brought through races such as evie richards and height Harden. she's put loads of local grassroots races and she puts on kind of clinics and coaching experience days to help women get into the sport and i think you know as the sport grows um it's going to get more diverse and um people like tracy are those people who are kind of pushing that side of the envelope which i think is really cool it's a solid list james yeah. Thank you. Took me all day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's get let's get on to my list now. My first one, I don't know his name. It could be a woman, but it's just some stoned hippie. I'm not exactly sure which one, to be honest generic, with you. Generic generic stoned hippie. Yeah, generic stoned hippie is who I want carved into my Mount Rushmore. So people had been racing bikes off-road for decades in Europe. They called it cyclocross before someone thought that a cruiser bike would be great off-road with a few modifications. So the big tires, the brakes with motorcycle levers, um, wide handlebars, those kinds of things. And then they'd race them down some gravel roads and probably smoke a whole lot of weed. Both things that I like. So (laughs) I resemble this. (laughs) Yeah, I resemble this. So therefore, I think that that makes a whole lot of sense. I'm sure that some other people would have ridden their bikes off-road at some point. And like I said, people in Europe, they've been riding their bikes off-road for a long time and calling it cyclocross. So this is not a new thing. But at some point, somebody said, 
let's make this cruiser thing a little more comfortable off-road and it made it way better and that's kind of where our sports started and whoever that stoned hippie is i would love to have him up there yeah i like that it was like the stoned hippies that kind of took the sport forward and maybe not the european cyclocross riders like it was the focus Worked on out better yeah the focus on fun and speed and and not on like suffering which is basically what right. cyclocross is all about like suffering off-road for an hour so yeah it's like it's something that sets like the attitude of mountain biking i think yeah that's that's kind of where that that is born i think we forget like how counterculture iconoclast kind of weirdly gen x rebel-y early mountain biking was because it seems that's like a I did normal it. sport now i know right <laughs> <laughs> you and your wide pants yeah, Jenko jeans and Mountain Dews and mountain bikes, <laughs> and those guys yeah, are going don't... like super fast as well. I can't. We put a story. I can't remember who it was. Apologies to whoever it was. Someone went back a pro on like a modern trail bike and tried to beat the fastest time that one of them put down. Oh, yeah, it was Kabush. Kabush. Jeff Kabush. Yeah, yeah. And um, I mean, they they did beat it, but it took them a few goes, and it looked pretty like yeah, edge of your seat stuff. The helmet cam, so. Yeah, they were really hauling on those bikes that just weren't designed for it. Is there is there one of those guys that claims to have invented the mountain bike? Like, if we go back, there's, like, Cunningham and Joe Breeze and Gary, Gary Fisher, Fisher and Jackie Phelan and... Richard Cunningham. Richard Cunningham. I've heard I don't of think any guy. of those has come... I don't think any of them has come out and been like, I did this all by no. myself. I think they've all kind of recognized. I mean, Gary Fisher's had some strong claims in the past, but I think these days they all kind of know it was a... A group thing just all happening yeah. at once. Yeah. Okay. Well, my next one isn't a person. It's a magazine. Well, it's actually two magazines. It's Mountain Bike Action and it's Dirt from the UK, which are complete opposites, of course, but sort of hear me out here. Both MBA and Dirt, which has left us, have chronicled the sport's growth and played a huge role in shaping my view of it and tons of other people as well. And your view is what really matters here. <laughs> well, that's what we're talking about, isn't it? <laughs> so mountain bike action in particular is one of the main reasons that I even started mountain biking in the first place. I remember being a kid, I was probably 13, 14, something and in Safeway and seeing a mountain bike action with Robbie Rupe, the BMXer on the front cover with some like eight or nine inch travel prototype and thinking to myself, that looked like a lot of fun. Shortly after I broke my arm, but the seed was planted and I was a mountain biker. NBA, <laughs> um, I know the kind of people make fun of them, don't they, Kaz? Yeah, I'll say that neither of these magazines influenced me in my early days in the slightest, but I'll let you keep going. Yeah, okay. All right, thanks. Um, I think NBA, they, people definitely make fun of them. It's that SoCal magazine that RC and Jimmy Mack used to work for. They haven't you changed. Think that they much. got like a premium for how many times they could post a photo fo- or like publish a photo of somebody like going through a st- like splashing through a stream with like their knee out doing an ugly table and like grinning directly at the camera. Yeah, but it works. Look at all these other magazines that have disappeared over the years. Mountain Bike Action, the format, like the basic format, the basic layout itself of the magazine and their mission hasn't changed. They've been consistent and it's. You can say what you want. They're not the coolest magazine around, that's for sure, but they're still around. And I think they're one of the best-selling mountain bike magazines out there, and people are obviously buying it and reading it. You know, and they've obviously documented a lot of the sport as well. You guys, what about Dirt Mag? 
from the UK. Now not talking my language. <laughs> yeah, there we that's go. Also, that's the Northway thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think he's the one that put it out of, put it out of business. I think it was James. Yeah, that was me, actually, yeah. <laughs> Ooh, awkward. <laughs> so Dirt was the DH and Freeride magazine from the UK that covered uh, long travel bikes. It's completely different than Mountain Bike Action. It was more punk rock. It was more raw. It was full of uh, reviews written by Steve Jones that rambled on for 2,000 words too long, but were still absolutely amazing and perfect. Um, and it created that balance, I think. Like, you had... Magazines like Mountain Bike Action, Mountain Biking, Mountain Bike. And then on the other side, you had Dirt and those kind of magazines. And I think the balance of those two really played a huge role in cycling. And I want my magazines up on my mountain. Yeah, I think like Dirt, I don't think many people have got into the sport through Dirt. It won't have had that same like effect that NBA had on you. But like when you were into the sport and you found it, it felt like you were, to me, like in the club, you know, like... um this wasn't like bimbling around trail centers on a weekend. This was like a, an entire lifestyle and it is everything from the clothing to the music, to the, the language and everything like that. Like it was a real kind of subculture thing. Um, and then, yeah, it was, it was great. You're right. Like, you know, the features, they weren't perfect journalism. They were like, it was like you were, you were reading like what your friends had written, you know, they were, they was like a community thing is yeah, it was the best. I loved it. <laughs> Yeah, I will say I wish I had I wish I had encountered dirt earlier because where I was living in Colorado, we didn't have like you would just get them at the supermarket and they didn't tried, have dirt magazine. There. I tried to get our local seven eleven in Oliver to get dirt for me and they couldn't do it. Yeah, it was hard to find. So I don't think I I probably never even saw one until maybe I was at a buddy's house in Whistler or something. So then I was like, Oh, this is a cool magazine. But if I'd seen it earlier, I, I would have appreciated because I do like what was going on. In- I used to drive from Chilliwack to Langley just to get Dirt Magazine, about 45-minute drive. So you guys you guys don't disagree with me? I like it. I think, yeah, there's a role for some media on, on your mountain. Okay, I don't think you guys will agree with my last one, but uh, I think I think he definitely deserves to be on there. Bender is on my Mount Rushmore to cover the development requirements. So there's a long list of riders and racers who've pushed the sport, but I don't think there's ever been a single rider who made everyone say, holy shit, is that even possible? And it definitely wasn't possible in a lot of cases, Bender. (laughs) But sometimes he rode away from the hugest moves ever attempted. And now, while guys were doing tricks over some biggest jumps or being happy with stomping 15, 20-foot drops in videos, Bender was pointing himself off of 50-foot cliffs, eating shit so damn hard, and then doing it again, just trying to hang on. The guy wasn't trying to bring style or tricks. He wasn't trying to be fit. He wasn't trying to do anything except go huge. And he's one of the main reasons that we even have the Red Bull Rampage today. Uh, I also, guys, I like the fact that he wasn't embraced by the media or the sport. He was sort of this desert weirdo kind of doing his own thing out there in the Zion area, a bit punk rock, um, opening people's eyes to what was possible if the landing was steep enough and if he could hang on. I guys, if the landing had been steep enough, some of those would have worked out. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, if Wade had told him about transitions, it could have worked for him. <laughs> I'm not saying Bender is the most skilled or anything like that, but I think the things, what he brought to the sport as a whole, pushed the sport. I would argue, guys, more than Nico did, more than ACC did. 
Bender showed people what the heck. I was oh, I with love you that eye roll. <laughs> you guys just <laughs> missed an amazing know. eye roll. <laughs> All okay. of us, I think you had us mostly convinced till you said that. Come on. Yeah. I mean, like Bender helped with the free riding stuff and, and with yeah. Rampage and all of that. Like he definitely, you know. Nico didn't, Nico didn't, the sport didn't grow because of Nico. And that's not a prerequisite to be on, oh be on Mount Rushmore. I think it did. You don't think people wanted to be like Nico? So like, I'm going to try a downhill race? For sure. Yeah, for sure. People. That counts as growing the sport. Yeah, people definitely did. But I think a lot more people saw Bender sending it and was like, oh, let's go out and build some things. Let's push ourselves and send it. You know what? I can't believe I'm defending this but i think there's something to be said for him being one of the people that transcended out of the sport and you know the whole new world disorder crew and mentality was really mountain biking's one of their the few shots that mountain biking has to extend beyond like to be marketing for the sport because otherwise you're just marketing to yourselves the whole time and so yeah i don't know if bender is the poster child for it for me but um he is a badass and we should make sure that this mount rushmore has a transition at the bottom for when he inevitably hucks it. <laughs> would with his bender with the bender carving, would it just be him like wheel front front wheel super high, back wheel drop low just over penciled. the front handlebars, yeah. just <laughs> penciled waiting to bear trap fifty feet down. Yes. Maybe we can carve his name into where the jaw the jaw drop is or his face into that jaw drop, like the yeah. actual wall there. Cats, we just you carve ever seen it right it? there. No, it looks very scary. I've seen it. I've stopped at Jaw Drop in Kamloops. Mm-hmm. And this was, I don't know, 15 years ago or whatever, and we were going to ride Harper. Holy shit. Yeah, like, yeah, you, did you stand up there? Safe. No, I didn't climb to the top. I was too scared to climb to the top of it. It's I like a spree on, field. <laughs> I yeah. stood on the top of it, and it was not okay. I don't know. Do, do you think it still exists? It's probably bigger now, like how those things, how those like cliff bands kind of wear and stuff. Mm-hmm. Did, did anyone ever go back to it, or was it one and done? No, like, nobody's landed it. He went back to it and tried it six more times he just ragdolled every time oh, it was it's so flat the landing is super flat it looks kind of steep it looks it, almost doable like when you look at it in a video like a cartoon it looks like oh that's what free ride is like it could work but when you look at it in real life it's flat the landing is steep like the landing is steep but it's but it's like also the landing's flat. a downhill, but it's relatively flat for the thing where for where he's coming from. It's crazy. I would love to see somebody attempt that thing again. I I think it's doable. Like I think that the size of that drop is now not that un like no. unrealistic. I think people have done drops almost that big, or maybe I that think they've big. done bigger. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But just the fact that it was like such a low speed like plum drop just. Yeah. Not really. There wasn't like yeah. a land. Like now they know how to build landings. Yeah, like, yeah. I wonder if he even raked it. <laughs> I think so. But there was still a lot of trees in the in, in like that little sapling. New World Disorder the... video when he crashed the last time he did it, and he's on his stomach sliding towards the camera with his feet up in the air like full scorpion. Bender, God damn, you're the man. We got to get you on the podcast. <laughs> uh. Okay, let's move on. My last one is Wade Simmons. He's going to cover the preservation of the sport. I mean, he's going to live forever. He's a legend. He pushed things. He's still pushing it. And I think everybody still respects what he's doing. And Wade, we'll have you on the podcast too. Kaz, let's no. get to you and wrap yeah. up our Mount Rushmore here. All right. My list is a little different because in my mind, this is like our personal Mount Rushmore. Mm-hmm. So the things that more impacted us rather than one for like the whole world, but it still has some similarities. Like we don't have to talk about Tomac because we talked about him. He would just be on mine. Because... Uh, correct. No, I don't think it's uh, It's good. 
because uh, yeah, he just was influential, and I wanted to be like Tomac, so he's on my list. Obviously, Wade Simmons. We all agree on Wade, so I think he's the one. He's just gonna be the center of our mountain because we all agree <laughs> Wade belongs there for just you know pushing the free ride thing and just looking good on a bike and making everybody want to ride. But then my next one kind of goes along with yours. You kind of had the mountain bike action thing. I want to put Richard Cunningham on this Mount Rushmore. Mm, yeah, I didn't know RC that much before working. At he Pink also kind of satisfies the stoned hippie. <laughs> True, he does fall into that category. So it might be able. He might have invented mountain biking for all we know. So <laughs> could go with that. Um, just because I know he did influence a lot of people through his column and writings in Mountain Bike Action, and then even just all the stories and things he's told me since getting encounter him here at Pink Bike, I think he would definitely deserve a spot. But I'd also potentially Zapata Espinoza, who because back in the day I didn't read Mountain Bike Action. I didn't just it didn't appeal to me. But I read Mountain Bike Magazine. And Zap had a column in there, and even though I didn't always agree with him, and I still don't agree with some of the things he said back then, he was nice. He was like controversial, and he was pushing things, and he wasn't afraid to speak out at a time when um, the sport was changing. So I always kind of respected that attitude that he brought back then. Kaz, I think you nailed it with those ones. I was going to have RC on my list. I put RC on my list, and then I thought, well, maybe I should be be broader. But I feel like RC and Zap, both of those. You know, I. I saw Zap at a trade show back when we still did trade shows a few years ago, and I got so nervous. Yeah, like I still have tons of respect for him. And he, yeah. he's the guy, like when you're a kid, like, oh, that's Zap. Like he knows all about stuff. Yeah. And, you know, and you meet him, and now he's, you know, he's, he's in his 60s now and just a nice guy. But it's. No, he's uh, not. That, yeah, yeah. But to me, he's not. No, he's not. not. Like that. He's 40 something. <laughs> right. Yeah, he's going to be 40 forever, just like RC. <laughs> yeah. No, no RC will be 90 forever. <laughs> yeah. But either I, way, yeah, like it, it's like that that era was, you know, you waited for the magazines and then read what this person thought. And I think I'm sure that probably influenced me to doing this job. You know, what still comes into my mind all the time is that Zapata Espinosa review of the Rocky Mountain RM9 in Mountain Bike Magazine. I remember the front cover, exactly what it looked like. I remember that bike with the green flames. He raced it and talked about it. And I remember just thinking like, holy shit, this is amazing. I remember when he was was still pushing... Pardon me? Sorry, did he say it was good? Uh, I want to say that he How many said, chili peppers? <laughs> no chili peppers in this one, but I want to say that he he enjoyed riding it, but he was like, this is too much bike. This is a lot of bike. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I just like those kind of, because he was polarizing back then. And then, I almost, I, let's see, how many people am I up to? That's three. So, you can have preservation. Five. I'm you trying to have, have five. bonus. There's only well, four. I know, but hang on. Let me, I still have one more, at least, and then maybe a bonus. My next one would be Sterling Lawrence. He falls in that preservation category. Mm. Just because Strong. as far as preserving the sport, think of all the images that he's captured over the years. Like we all drooled over that bike magazine with his photos of the North Shore. Like, I'm sure that mm-hmm. made tons of people want to go ride that style of stuff. And then, I mean, out of all the top images taken over the last 20 years of the sport, Sterling's got a lot in there. So, um, yeah, I think that just helps, you know, capture the sport in an accurate way and make people inspired to ride. Yeah, I think he's taken photos of some of the things that mountain bikers will be talking about 50 years from now. Yeah, and it's just, you know, and, you know, in addition to that, he's a nice guy. But I think his photos just speak for themselves as far as helping people recognize the progression of the sport over the years. Um, and then I think as a last bonus, I kind of want Missy Giovi on, on Mount Rushmore. Yeah, Just because same thing, like back in, in that era, like the late 90s. I remember seeing pictures of her like racing the naked crit in Mount Snow and just having that piranha around her neck. And to me, it was that kind of like, oh, mountain biking is kind of edgy. It's out there. It's different. And it wasn't your normal like school sports, your normal, you know, you know, organized, super organized thing. So I like that about 
about her. That was even before free riding really took off. It was kind of, she's already sort of rebellious before then. That was before uh, her massive drug bust as well. Also before that, yeah. And, you know, she's still wild and, and crazy and still rides and stuff. But I think in that era, like late 90s Missy, you definitely go onto, a, onto the Mount Rushmore. Yeah, I can get behind that, Kes. I think that makes yeah. sense. Would you put her over like a similar, like a Palmer or a Steve Pete or like one of those other like, I'm a downhill racer, but a rebel kind of people? I would. I never, I mean, I'll just be blunt. I've never really respected Palmer and never been a big fan of him. So he wouldn't go on my Mount Rushmore. Like he obviously is a talented individual, but his like super cocky attitude rather than just being a little bit kooky, he's more cocky than kooky. So I think that I don't like that. He's kind of a, kind of a dick. So I would not put him on my Mount Rushmore. Sorry, Palmer. Interesting that none of us had him on our Mount Rushmore. I bet we're going to get some comments about that. Well, it's, it's our mushroom. That's true. It's ours. Other people can yeah. have theirs. That's fine. I feel like yeah, his, his influence is like maybe even dying off a bit though. Like that moto look is kind of going away and like, you know, we've talked about how it's so like more professional now and like he might have been like a shot in the arm at the time, but I kind of feel like that isn't as influential as it was maybe like five, 10 years ago, you know? Yeah. And I think you can't get away with, I mean, his, like I said, he did have natural talent. Like there's no denying that he has natural talent pretty much all the sports he tried. But nowadays these guys have guys and girls have to train so hard and be so focused. I don't think you can do the party till 2am roll up and actually win a race. Now it's just not possible. I remember he had this goal of trying to qualify for a 250 motocross or maybe it was a supercross main event. Do you guys know if he ended up being able to do that? Cause that's impressive. Like to be, to be able to do that on a mountain bike and then do that on a on a dirt bike is impressive. Wait, but... Does history repeat itself? Yeah, are you talking about Bernard Kerr? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, I'm not sure if Palmer ever did that. I remember he had, he tried to have a couple of comebacks after his uh, mm-hmm. yeah fall from grace, but uh, I don't know. Yeah. That was that Kerr was talking about it too. But I remember Palmer wanted to qualify for a 250 main event, and I think he did. I think Tomac is, had it best. He just outsourced it to his child. Yeah, <laughs> right. He's just like, hey, kids, just... go do this. <laughs> Man. Yeah. Yeah. So that's my, that's my Mount Rushmore. Tomac, Simmons, RC, Sterling Lawrence, and Missy. That, that makes sense, Kaz. Let's, let's move on to our, let's move on to our comment gold and wrap up today's podcast. This first one is from PB user, Brian Park. Sounds like a dork. He says, wait, what? <laughs> did you give me comment gold? Yeah, I did. <laughs> oh, that's so nice. Yeah. This is on the podcast article. Uh, we were talking about some bike shop stuff and what it's like going into a bike shop. And sometimes you can get some snark. Brian Park says, nothing like getting snarked for the privilege of ordering something on the internet. I could order myself to my house. <laughs> yeah. Is this you just a classic like, but- line. buttering yeah. me up for a raise or something? Uh, no, probably the opposite, actually. <laughs> can you please pay me less? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Our next comment gold, this is from, oh, this is from one of my favorite PBU users, uh, Vapidoscar, otherwise known as Vapidoscar. <laughs> my build, he says, shop online for 18 months, watch everything he was thinking about ordering, sell out, get his money lined up, start buying parts, none are the size he was hoping for, end up with a medium 27.5 frame, which should be on a large with a 29er. He then develops analysis paralysis when it comes to obtaining wheels and brakes. Next step, consider selling everything he's obtained and just buying a Vetus Mathique when it comes in stock. Not a bad strategy. 
Next step, finally get all the parts except a 100 millimeter, 180 millimeter brake adapter that he didn't even know he needed. Next step, wait three more weeks until he finally finishes the build. Next step, hope that he could figure out his air suspension. Next step, wonder why his tubeless wheels keep going flat. Next step, ding a rim, even though he's running tire insert. Next step, mysteriously lose all spoke tension. And finally, get lots of compliments on his $1,800 build that people think is a $3,000 bike. Vapido scar, it was all worth it in the end, I hope. <laughs> what a nightmare. What a, Jeez. like, it, so, mountain biking is really complicated. It can be. <laughs> it takes so, yeah, especially he's going in hard mode, just not, not getting a complete, but. Yeah. Man. Well, Vapido Scar, we have some advice for you. It's our last comment gold. It's from Walters001. He says, best bike buying advice of 2021. Check the MSRP of the bike you find on the online classifieds. All right, that is it for comment gold. And that is it for episode 64 of the Pink Bike Podcast. Who is going to be on your mountain bike, Mount Rushmore? Do we make any sense at all with John Tomac and Bender and Wade Simmons and all those other people, let us know what you think and let us know who you would put on your mountain bike, Mount Rushmore. Stay tuned for number 65 next week. Mm-hmm.